Good day, and welcome to another episode of the Don't Change Much podcast, brought to you by the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. My name is Dan Murphy. All right, we've all heard the saying, nature is healing. On today's episode, you'll learn that is not hyperbole. And in fact, for some, it's a lifestyle, a way to better themselves physically, mentally, and spiritually. Meet Henry Morgan of the Gixson Nation and Frank Cohen, co-director of Dudes Club Society, an indigenous men's wellness organization. Morgan is here to explain the practice of land-based healing, his own relationship to nature, and how helping others to reconnect or experience the natural environment for the first time helps heal trauma and strengthen cultural identity in First Nations communities. Manage your stress, not the other way around. For simple ways to improve your mental health, check out the free MindFit Toolkit from the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Complete a self-assessment, access virtual counseling, and learn more about how anxiety, stress, or depression might be impacting your health. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca and access the MindFit Toolkit to start improving your mental wellness today. Well, this should be a very uh, interesting conversation. Nature's healing power in First Nations culture. And with that said, we'll bring in Henry Morgan and Frank Cohen, and we'll start with Henry. And Henry, simply, when did your journey begin with land-based healing? And why did you start this journey? Land-based healing was introduced to me as a child. It was things that we had to do around uh, our house, our community our family in order to survive, in order to work together. It was shown to be shown to me by my aunties and my uncles through them coming together to do things right when it came to harvesting uh, of our salmon. My aunties all gathered together and all the men were out there and fishing. And part of that introduction to the harvesting was our practices uh, in the smokehouse for myself. And my brother, um, we were taught many different ways to preserve salmon, uh, from smoking to canning to half dried to fully dried, and how to keep our area clean, no matter where we are. Like it's at our fishing hole, at our smokehouse, and throughout my life there. As we got older, we, I separated away from my community, but took it kind of for granted when my family continued with that work. Well, what's your relationship to land-based healing now? I was reintroduced uh, longer than 10, 12 years ago as I worked with people in the urban setting and seeing the addictions, seeing the homelessness, and just witnessing these things that have been going on as I come from a, a rural setting where I didn't, un- didn't know there was addiction and homelessness, but there was prevalence. Working with um, Sweat Lodge leaders such as Alden Pampana, right, and uh, there's uh, quite a few others that were actively out in the communities of the urban settings, running Sweat Lodges, trying to support those people that were struggling with addictions and homelessness. And I was a part of that in the 25 years I was downtown, trying to understand not only why First Nations were coming into the city, 
but also understand the First Nations organizations that were coming together to try and support them in a, a way to improve their mental health and emotional, spiritual, and physical, right? And I was a part of that too, because like I had to understand my place and my teachings and balance the Western world with the Indigenous world practices of medical model versus uh, land-based healing model and the importance of having both of them to um, help someone. And that itself was like my, my partner calls it conjunctional therapy where you're using two, two views and like within the dudes club, it's a two-eyed scene, right? Then it's uh, created clarity, but it also gave the Western model a something to um, utilize in when we're working with our people. And it is in those spaces where I started strengthening myself in the teachings that I carried and how I can use that to help another person. Fantastic. You just mentioned Dudes Club, so let's make the connection here to Frank Cohen, a director of Dudes Club. And simply, Frank, what is Dudes Club? Sure. Thanks for the question. And it's a pleasure to be here with you and with Henry Morgan. And Dudes Club is a brotherhood for men's wellness. And it was launched in 2010 by men in the community for men in the community. And the community at that point was one of those urban communities that Henry just referred to that men kind of travel into from all around. And in this case, it was the downtown east side. We've continued to share the work with more and more communities. And now there's over 50 communities, mostly in the north, but also in the different urban cities around BC and a couple outside of BC that all have some kind of gathering of men. And it's a very non-prescriptive, non-formulaic, open model to men's wellness based in the idea that if there's one thing and one thing only that we can and need to do with men, is to reduce their isolation. Because we know that, especially as men get older, into their 40s, 50s, 60s, isolation becomes very hazardous for your health. Whether it's somebody who has an, an active addiction and, and some substance use practice, or somebody who doesn't and who just you know has that weird pain in their back or their butt or their head or whatever it is, and is unwilling to say, hey, I need help. And, and we know from the research and we know from our experience of working with thousands of men over the last decade and a bit that uh, if a man has some other guys that he feels comfortable and safe with, then he'll start to open up and he'll start to share and he'll start to ask for help. Henry, I think there's increased awareness about mental health and mental health issues. Tell us about getting out into nature itself and being outside and all the benefits it can have to the mind. Yeah, Definitely. When you're living in urban settings, it's very challenging to get out, right? Get out onto the land, get out onto the water, breathing fresh air. As you know that when you're living in industrial spaces, you have vehicles, you have mills, you have multiple things that contribute to pollution. And pavement is one of those things as well that impact it. Uh, so just getting away from that creates a sense of calmness within our mind and our energy, right? Because our environment impacts our mental and our emotional well-being, right? So if we're able to get away, that makes a world of a difference. I just ran into a gentleman who attended our last retreat 
about three years ago with the Dudes Club. We went down to Loon Lake, and just by him coming and meeting other men, he's been sober ever since. And like he said, he was very appreciative for the opportunity just to get away, to be on the land again, to reconnect with the land, reconnect with other men, to know that there was other people out there working hard to support men. And that was just last week when I ran into him. And there's so many stories like that, just coming together and being as one on the land that people have changed their lives. Like they stopped the drinking, they stopped the anger. It just changed them. What does, I know you just, uh, you've just completed one of these retreats. Can you just perhaps walk us through uh, what might happen in a retreat over a weekend, uh, what you might try to achieve? I think a lot of it is finding our voice. And that's a beautiful thing about the Dudes Club as well, is like, it's finding your voice. And culture provides that avenue. So whether we're bringing in drum making, whether we're bringing in facilitation and how to be like a leader in your community to work with other men, right? Uh, Having a voice and how to work with other elders in your community to strengthen your voice and to know that you're using culture in a good way, not for profit, but just for in a good way to help another person, right? Um, It's just a beautiful way of knowing, like as an Indigenous person growing up and looking at our traditional lines, we have chiefs in my community. I have a chief and he was groomed as a child to take the role of being a chief, but he had to learn how to speak to public. He had to learn how to be with his family. He had to learn how to be with his land. So his voice and knowledge that he carries is a very important piece in order to connect with others. So finding our voice is one of the keyest piece and finding strength in trusting others and not doing something with an expectation that I'm going to receive this if I do this, but rather just being there for someone and supporting them. Frank, are there parallels that can be drawn to the general population, to those of us who are not First Nations, who don't have these traditions to help those who aren't First Nations? Are there parallels? Absolutely. I I think so. And, you know, in many ways, this is a cultural or a kind of sociopolitical question, but in many ways, it's a gender-based one. And what we're talking about, not just issues that affect men who are from Indigenous communities, but who affect all of us as men. All of us as men, I think, struggle with disconnect from land and from traditional practices, even though some of our traditional practices have worked their way into our dominant culture here in Canada, and therefore they're kind of regularly, daily validated and supported through our pop culture. But for most of us, that's not really the case. And so reconnecting with that is hugely essential and important. And also as men, we struggle to reach out for support, to make friendships even, especially later in life, to ask for help. You know, part of this process of the undoing of cultural strength and of connection to land is this idea that, well, you're, this is how, who you're supposed to be as a man. This is, the, this is what it means to be a successful man. And as we know, a lot of that ends up producing different forms of toxic masculinity as well, or 
problematic masculinity, you know, ways of being a man that doesn't actually help you to feel better and certainly maybe doesn't make your family and friends to to feel better. But this is what we're told that we should do. And if we don't have other things to replace it with, then that's kind of the fallback that we go to. I'm a tough guy. Okay. And so these are things that we all need to talk about. And, you know, the healing that needs to happen really is not certainly not just for men in or coming from indigenous communities it's for all of us and for all of us who are also starting to build our awareness about what our country's history is and what has happened in order for us to have the the wonderful life and comforts that we do have here and whose culture was displaced or or attempted to be snuffed out in order for that to happen and there's a lot of healing and processing for all of us to do there. And this connection that Henry is, you know, so graciously and, and, and wisely kind of walking us through here is so important for all of us, not just for, for men from his community or from other First Nations communities. Henry, you said you, you didn't realize there was homelessness, there was addiction until you moved from a rural setting to a more urban setting. And clearly you felt like this land-based healing could help others. Did you need to reconnect to that personally as well before you could move on to help others? Yes, most definitely. I had to um, understand how the, the communities in urban settings were utilizing our practices to reintegrate that strength and resilience within the First Nations communities that were um, struggling with homelessness and addictions, right? And the teachings that uh, were given to me, I had to look at them, be guided by the elders that are around me in the organizations that were using their own teachings as well. So with that approach of having being supported by elders, it allowed me to uh, reconnect not only with my culture, but with a, another uh, nation's culture and how so similar we are. But um, that homelessness and addictions was new for me because like growing up in a small community, we, I just assumed people just went away to work and went to um, education, right? And it wasn't until, like, like I said, till I came into the city where I was really um, introduced to it and understanding about how residential schools, I was 35 years old when I first heard about residential school, but I was about that same age when I came out of my community, like 20 years old, coming out of my community and Working with addictions and homelessness, I didn't realize that residential schools was the the impact and why we have so much um, hurt within our people. Why is the relationship to land and nature so important and perhaps so effective in the healing process? Well, the land provides plenty for us. It provides us food. It provides us shelter. It provides us warmth, right? It guides us because... If we look after the land, we look, we're looking after ourselves, right? That land-based piece of it. And if we're protecting the land, we are honoring what it provides to us. And we are, we're asking the, the creator itself to guide us and to feed us, to clothe us, provide shelter for us. It's when we connect to the land, we are actually connecting to our ancestors and our practices before colonization. 
You're from the Gitsa Nation, uh, Northern BC. You, you already mentioned the importance of salmon, the harvesting of salmon. Um, how much do these practices change uh, with different First Nations? The practices change from different First Nations based on how far up the river they are. Each community has to preserve their salmon a different way, slightly different way in each space. And like if you come from the ocean, the salmon's more greasier, they're more fattier. And as they come up the river, they're more leaner and they're a lot larger. But then there's, as you get further to the end of the river, where the river starts up in the mountains, that's where they start um, laying their eggs, right? So they're older by the time they get up there. And some communities are right near the end of that. And uh, the meat is a lot softer. So they have to preserve it specific ways only by that time. We know the salmon don't run year round. So changing of seasons, did the practices change when you're going into winter, uh, spring, summer? Most definitely. Our season starts in spring. That's when we start picking our soap berries that are to help us digest the food that we had eaten throughout the winter because we're less active sometimes. And then then the, the first fish comes in up the river, and that's called the ulicans. And then that's early February. And then June, July, the spring salmon start coming up the river. Then the sockeye come in, then the coho steelhead. So throughout the whole summer, depending on where you are located, your ability to work with salmon is based on that. Then we go into the berry seasons, making sure that we're out there harvesting berries for our families, the teas and our medicines as well, all before fall, before everything starts to rotting, I guess, like the, the end of their season, the plants, right? And when fall's coming and they're starting to prepare to protect themselves for the winter. So a lot of our harvesting is that. We follow the changing of the weather. We know when the moose, where the moose are on the mountains. And we know where the berries are on the mountains. We know where the fish is. We know when the fish are coming. And that's all about the teachings that were given to us. And the biggest thing is like, they don't wait for, for you to be ready. You have to be ready. And like the salmon don't wait for you. They'll go right by you if you're not ready. The moose will continue their journey. The berries will go away if you're not ready. So a lot of that is a talk to us. It's like, you have to be prepared and you have to be on the land. Frank, I mean, obviously these are all practices that can be done in Kispiaks. But these are not things that can be done in the downtown east side. How difficult is it to begin the healing process in an, maybe like in an urban environment? Yeah, very challenging. And that's one of the things that we become very aware of in our work is, is disconnection. Disconnection from the land, disconnection also from culture. We have to keep in mind that not only was the residential school system in place, until 1996, which happens to be the year that I graduated high school. And like Henry, I also didn't know anything about those schools when I was growing up here. Disconnection from culture, land, disconnection from language is huge. And disconnection comes along with that from family, from community, and from self, and, and from your own health and wellness. When, when you're disconnected from those important kind of pillars and foundations in life, 
then you also start to disconnect, sometimes caring or sometimes taking care of your health. Um, so super challenging, and not just downtown east side Vancouver, but also the inner city or the urban core of Prince George, of Kamloops, of Smithers, Terrace, the list goes on and on, you know, and then extending beyond BC as well, Calgary, Toronto, you know, throughout our nation, we have a lot of these urban centers where people have come to because of lack of opportunity, because of the whole set of colonial laws and policies that disrupted life. And so it makes it very difficult. So is that something that we are able to do and kind of handle and fix right away in an inner city neighborhood context? No. Are we able to start small? Absolutely. So with the downtown east side guys, for example, they're more likely to be playing bingo or watching hockey than they are to be going out and picking medicine or you know following the salmon run. And that's connected to, to where their wellness is currently. You have to be, as Henry says, if you're not ready, then you know the land, the animals, they don't care. They'll walk right by you or over you. And so we, we look for ways to start small and we look for ways to bring some medicine in to invite our uh, you know in individuals in our community who are knowledge keepers or elders or who have some of that cultural or or awareness of the land to bring that in and to share it with the men little by little and then to organize shorter and smaller trips out and then every once in a while so we have some annual retreats that we do take men from the inner city neighborhoods out onto the land and those are massively transformative for these guys but then, of course, it's challenging because you come back into a context where you don't have security in your housing. You don't know, you know, sometimes where you're, you're going to lay your bed that night or, you know, where your next meals are coming from. And it becomes very challenging. And so just having that in the environment, having it around, ensuring that we have drumming happening um, is, is a big thing. Ensuring that there are smudges that are available to the men when they come in for a meal. Some of those small little pieces are often how we kind of chip away at that isolation and the, um, uh, the disconnection. As you guys know, the, the podcast is called Don't Change Much. So Henry, what advice would you give to those living in inner cities, urban environments, who are ready or willing or wanting to make that first step to land-based healing? Well, I think um, with that, it's like a lot of it is just taking little little steps, knowing when, where, they, where they are in their life, right? And ensuring that they're being interactive or engaging. Uh, it's about having our elders there and just supporting them on that journey. Because when you're struggling with homelessness and addictions, it's all about building trust and relationship. And within the Dudes Club and within my whole life, it's always been about just trust and relationship and just knowing that you're there. Like I was in many roles within the downtown Prince George community. I was in uh, shelters, I was in harm reduction, I was in needle exchange, I was in clinics, brain injured many different uh, models where I was able to work with the same population, but also know that building trust and relationship, it was the, the key piece and meeting them where they're at and not forcing them to be there, but allowing that openness for them to come in when they feel like it and also to participate if they want to. You said you began this 
around 10 years ago. Was was there one experience, something that stands out that you know, kind of made you look inward and said, this is the work I need to do. This is kind of my purpose moving forward. Um, like 10 years ago was my, my own personal journey. 25 years ago or about 25 years ago is when I was in, came to Prince George, where I was introduced to the homelessness and addictions. And that's where I kind of started working with people. It started with the Friendship Center. Um, I started out as a janitor and I worked in this halfway house for men. And when I started my work there, I didn't really know there was big jails or smaller jails or what the difference was where the men were coming out of. I knew that when they were coming into the community that they needed support and they needed direction. Just by myself walking into the, the halfway house, or they thought I was another person that was coming out of jail. I had to look at that and just understand what I was dealing with, where I was, right? And how was I supposed to help these people that are coming out, right? These men. And that was just by just being there for them, being able to listen to them and share what I know. How open were these men to listening to you, to trying to reconnect as then you did about 10 years ago? Um, some were pretty open. They, a lot of them first were experiencing spirituality or culture in jail, right? They were introduced to it in jail. So some of them had a larger connection than I was. But um, it all depended on the person, the individual, on where they were at when they're coming out, their intentions. So for me, it was, uh, they were pretty open-minded to sit with me because I was just another person, another male person, native, that was trying to make its way through this world. And the uh, majority of them were all bigger than me. Like I was looking up at these guys, they're six feet tall, they're... 300 pounds or huge men coming out of incarceration. And I felt that uh, my presence there was unimportant, but I didn't realize how important it was for me to be in that space. What about you, Frank? Um, you're not First Nations. Is there an openness, conversations with yourself to listening to you because of your experience 20 years in you know community development and such? Yeah, yes and no is definitely the answer to that. And, and in, in a lot of ways, we, we kind of support that and feel that's how it should be. I mean, we always start any engagement by recognizing and acknowledging the reasons that guys may have to not trust and to not listen. And we have fun with it. We, we joke a lot. And, and humor is, is a hugely important aspect of the work and, and of our approach to, to health and wellness generally. So, you know, needless to say, self-deprecating humor is important within that and, and, you know, not taking it personally as well. You know, for me as a white guy going into communities, first of all, the team that I work with is a lot smarter than me and, you know, is very careful to say, Frank, you can't ever go to a community by yourself. Maybe if Henry will go with you, or maybe if, you know, our elder Sandy Lambert will go with you or one of our other elders or knowledge keepers, then great. Otherwise, you know, it's based on kind of assumptions and presentations that, well, I know better because I'm from outside of your community, or I know better because I'm a white guy, or I know better because, you know, I have a position of authority. And that's certainly not the approach that we take. Our approach is really the flip of that, that the guys who are in community know best about what they need 
and you know what their challenges are. So we're really here as supporters, facilitators, providing tools, coaching, mentoring. And so that work is always, always done hand in hand with people from community and again with the knowledge keepers and elders and you know people who are cultural people from all around all different nations and and that is done together in concert. Uh, so yeah, there's often a lot of of pushback. And that's something that we, again, acknowledge and accept and, and in fact, welcome. Henry, you, you mentioned, you know, the balance between Western medicine and, you know, some forms of land-based healing. Maybe you can tell us about the medicine wheel and the variations of its practice because it's been used by First Nations people for a long, long time. Well, I believe the medicine wheel was created just to show the medical model, right? What um, Indigenous practices look like, like with the mental health, the emotional health, the spiritual and the physical health. And within the Indigenous, it was always a oral traditions that was passed down, right? It wasn't written. Nothing was written. And when we look at why the medicine wheel was created, it was just to allow space to introduce it into uh, the medical model or the modern world who disregarded any of our practices. And it, even today, like it's very challenging to have an Indigenous practice in any space, medical, governmental, like, like it's unheard of. And it's uh, very challenging when it comes to supporting or being there for our people, right? So an example of the medicine wheel would be like the colors, the yellow, the white, the black, and the red. And you could define that further into the races in the world, where there's the, the white, the Asian, the black, and the indigenous, right? So and with the, that balance, there has to be a balance within the people in order to survive. Because if one dominates the rest, the rest suffer. And that's with air, fire, water, and land. Same thing. And when you look at separating the quadrants on the medicine wheel, if we take out air, nobody lives. If you the fire takes consumes the world, nobody lives. You destroy the land, nobody lives. You destroy our water, nobody lives, right? So it's all about balance when you look at the medicine wheel and how it is integrated in today's society is uh, one of the indigenous approaches that, that we always have to have balance, not only on the land, but our, within ourselves, right? We have a mental health, we have an emotional health, we have a spiritual health, and we have a physical health. And right now, when we're working with people who are struggling, the spiritual piece that I see is more prevalent because with residential schools, there was a huge uh, displacement between what was God God's way of living that was shown to us versus a spiritual way, which is two different ways, right? In, real, in the residential schools, the priests and the nuns were brought in to discipline everybody and show them that this is the way you're supposed to live and your, your way is a savage way and not accepted with today, even today. Right. It's like that our way of living is not accepted in many spaces. So there's been development, but mm -hmm. not enough. 
And that's the importance of keeping uh, many of these traditions going and reintroducing those who may have gotten away from them. Henry, I'm going to ask you, what is a medicine bundle and how is it used? Well, in my world, in my life, uh, medicine bundle is the tools that I need to move forward to um, connect with another person. Could be sage, it could be tobacco, it could be language, right? And how I communicate with another person um, and to help support them with their me- their mental health, their emotional health, their spiritual and physical, right? And the medicine bundle also protects me, right? And it also guides me in my life to know that the traditions that were taught to me, um, I can share them, but I can't give it to them. They have to find their own path and find their own medicine bundles. If it's okay, I would also add to that, that uh, just draw people's attention to a, a book by Gary Geddes called um, Medicine Unbundled, which goes through in, in really systematic research, a, a look at the ways in which a segregated healthcare system that we had in our country until a couple decades ago, really unbundled those bundles that uh, had been so carefully um, crafted and built over time. But yeah, as Henry mentioned, also the type of language that we use with people is really important. And uh, we used to have something that we called our toolkit, uh, which was supporting men to develop their own men's group or men's gatherings in their communities, you know, focused on local activities that work for them. And we changed the name of it to call it now the Knowledge Bundle to be more reflective um, and appropriate. So it's really designed for the individual. It changes from person to person. Yeah, most definitely. It is. It's how the how the person connects to it. It's all about knowing what medicines were introduced to them through their whole lives. And they all have had experienced it. Like when we look at the population that we're working with, they're all about 40s, 50s, and 60s and up. So they all have grown up on the land. They have all grown up on the trap lines. They've grown up being taught by their grandparents, right? Because sometimes um, our grandparents had to raise uh, raise us, right? And when you're taught by your grandparents, you're going back 100 years, right? Those teachings are 100 years from there. So, and my grandparents lived till they were 100. Right. So, and then my dad's turning 80 now. So when you look at that's, that's quite a, and I'm 50. So that's 200 years easily there of knowledge that's shared within that time frame, two or 300 years. Right. So it's amazing how that medicine bundle that we carry, that knowledge is passed down to generation to generation. And each of us, where we're at, at what age where we are, when we start really understanding the importance of it. There's also just that quick piece on two-spirited as well. Like, I don't want to forget them. Um, they have uh, an important space within us as an Indigenous, so I really want to acknowledge them. And as they are in that strengthening place as well, um, since colonization, they were placed aside because of being two-spirited and this acknowledge for their importance in our community and in as a part of our medicine bundle knowing the strength that they carry is a very important strength in our community and now that they're coming back a lot stronger it's a lot safer for them to be present 
within amongst us. Like they were always amongst us, but now they're starting to feel safer. Henry, for those who might be listening, they're saying, I'm ready to take this first step. Where can they go to get this help, to reconnect? What are the resources if they're listening and saying, I'm ready? Well, there's multiple resources out there in the urban settings. It could be in the Aboriginal organizations, it could be in the clinics, but the Dudes Club, like um, uh, Frank was saying, there is like we've tried to integrate it in our own communities. There's 55 nations in the north. and out of those 55 nations, there's, I think the first year it was like 35, something like that, that actively had a men's group that were working towards supporting other men. But then there's the, the cities that are in between them, like Prince George, Terrace, Prince Rupert, Vancouver, the urban settings, they had dudes clubs there as well. So that created that linkage to the communities. So... A lot of First Nations that were in the urban settings were from these smaller communities. So once they realized that there was a dudes club or a men's group in the community, First Nations community, they were, it begins that thought process of that I could go home and I can share and I can be there in my community, continuing to do the work that I do where I am right now. So I think uh, any Indigenous organization is working towards it as well as the the urban communities. They are working hard to create a space for men. I believe that men are under supported in any space when it comes to shelters, independent living, everything. Well, I can't let uh, you guys go without uh, asking a question we asked all our guests. And Frank, I'll start with you. When you hear don't change much, what does that mean to you? Yeah. It's a, it's a big one. I think it means we have the tools and the knowledge to be able to take better care of ourselves. I think it means that we don't need to look further than the guy to our right, the guy to our left, the community to our right, to know that, that we can have that support and we can build that connection. At the same time, we also know that with the last 150 years of laws and policies that have really upended life for people who have been here for more than 15,000 years, many of, of the nations, that, that everything changed. Everything changed during these last 150 years. And so in a way, you know, we can think of that motto applying to the idea of don't change much of everything that was changed and let's go back to it and figure out what it was and figure out, okay, what did we learn in 15,000 years that works to be well in this environment? And how can we go back to that, even though we've been pushed away from it? And so I think, I think there's a couple of, of ways to really, to really look at that that are, that are both equally important. Henry, don't change much. What do you think of? I think when you, when you look at that, don't change much. You listen to our elders. It's like when we're harvesting, if you change your practice and what you're doing, you will change how you uh, harvest things. So they say, don't, don't do anything different from what we're showing you. Just continue to do what we, what we have shown you in a good way. You'll always move forward 
and you'll always have plenty of full food for your family. It's it's that concept that, well, maybe if I add more spice, it'll be different. Or if I try this way, it'll be different. If we don't change much, like if we continue to do the same practice and we know that it works, just to continue to do that in a good way every day throughout our lives and we'll have good results right, with the teachings that we have been given to us. Well, this has been uh, as fascinating as I hoped it would be. And I just want to thank you both for your time and the incredibly impactful work that the two of you do. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And looking forward to more conversations. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and know someone else will too, please share it. We'd also love to hear your feedback, so rate the podcast and give us your comments. For more helpful tips on improving your mental and physical health, please visit menshealthfoundation.ca and don'tchangemuch.ca.